all children are the same in that they are all children, but each one of them is different from each other of them. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So last week, Andrew, we started a podcast entitled, However Imperfectly, Seven Lessons Learned in Your 30 Years of Teaching. I think that's what we did. (laughs) I think we, and you know, as it, as it happens in our podcast every now and then, we do run out of time. What I like about keeping our podcast short, and this is something I've, something I'm committed to is keeping them short so that people can just listen to them while they're doing the dishes, folding a load of laundry, or for me personally, I can get my morning walk in and listen to a podcast. Reminds me of a postscript that Blaise Pascal wrote once. He said, I apologize for the length of this letter. I didn't have time to make it shorter. (laughs) Right, exactly. To work hard to make it short. We have to cut content. We have to be disciplined. We have to not say superfluous things, like a discussion about whether podcasts should be short. (laughs) Right. Or we just ignore that and just cut a podcast into two or three parts. Okay. Okay, Well, that's what we did, right? That is what we decided to do is pick up where we left off. So seven lessons learned. Last week, you talked about it's hard not to do what was done to you. So we are a product of our education. We, We get that mold and we hold that shape. We don't have a chance to think, well, was what was done to me actually the best thing, because we don't have a context for any other thing. Right. So I think I recommended uh, John Taylor Gatto's books as a way to help break that mold. Right. Good. And then we spent quite a bit of time, and this is probably why we ran out of time, talking about process versus product. Right. Which we could do a whole talk on that, but we won't. We'll no, move on. we have to push forward. <laughs> no, we do. Absolutely. So what was the third lesson that you learned in your 30 years of teaching? Did you start teaching when you were can? Ha. Huh. <laughs> yes, I once was a member of the Looks Way Too Young to Actually Be a Grandparent Club, but yes. now that's clearly not possible given my current visage. <laughs> no, I I would officially say I started teaching when I was 27. Mm. I'm just kind of when I went out on my own. I had mm-hmm. other miscellaneous teaching English in Japan, working at the institutes in Philadelphia, but that's when I really went out and had a studio of students. I started working at a school, mm-hmm. started my preschool, started homeschooling. So great. Okay. All that happened right around 30 years ago. 30 years ago. <laughs> well, all kids are different. This is something that's really so evident to anyone who spends time with kids mm-hmm. that no one would argue the point. Where it breaks down is when we see a school or a curricular or a classroom approach that doesn't acknowledge that and tries to have everybody do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way according to exactly the same schedule, 
to get exactly the same result. Mm -hmm. And when that doesn't work, which pretty much never will, that's frustrating Mm -hmm. because the system that was designed to do that isn't working. So how do we actually understand this differently? Well, it's kind of funny. I think you were with me at a teacher's conference, and I sat in on a special ed track, and I learned these new buzzwords Mm -hmm. in special ed, Mm -hmm. differentiated instruction. Right. This is based on the brilliant idea that special ed kids are different. Mm. Therefore, you can do different things. Mm -hmm. You can give them different levels of challenge or use different curricular materials or You can try to meet their needs, teach at the point of individual need, which, of course, was, you know, Mrs. Ingham 80 years ago was beginning to preach that. And I thought it rather humorous that you had to go to a special ed track at an education conference to hear this idea. Right. As I guess then if you're not special ed, then you're not different. And so you then don't have an opportunity to do different things at your point of need. It reminded me, I was doing a keynote talk at a homeschool conference for specifically special needs homeschool families. I did the keynote. And in the keynote, I said, well, every sibling would be a better sibling, and every teacher would be a better teacher, and every parent would be a better parent. Every administrator would be a better administrator. Every politician would be a better politician if everyone had a brain-injured child Mm. in their family. Because, of course, you immediately grow in compassion. Right. But even beyond that, you immediately realize you cannot judge this child's ability or evaluate them, assess their progress based on age, Mm -hmm. solely on age. But that's what we want to do. We want to say, because you're in nth grade, You have to have this set of skills, and we'll pass laws to dictate that every 10-year-old must be able to do this, this, and this, and this, unless, of course, they get labeled special needs. Right. But no one wants that. No, I mean, nobody does, but the truth, I guess, and what Mm -hmm. I said to the group is, you know, fortunately, you all have brain-injured children. Right. So you're in the best possible world to understand children and education and teaching and curriculum in the right light. Right. And I want to mention that we actually spent a couple weeks talking about child brain development Mm -hmm. in a previous podcast, so perhaps we can link to that in our show notes. Yes, if you can find it among (laughs) the hundred and some podcasts we now have. But it's true that actually whether you think you have a special needs child or not, Mm -hmm. really everyone who has children has a brain injured child. Right. Because everyone's brain injured. It's a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have neurologically flawless, right? Perfect. On the other end of the spectrum, you have comatose or dead, right? Everybody's somewhere in between, and it's just a matter of degree and location. Mm -hmm. And yet we want to make this kind of artificial dividing line. If it's significant enough, you label special ed. If not, well, then you mainstream and track and everybody goes into the conveyor belt system. And so I have said many times that I view the world primarily through the eyes of being a violin teacher, since Mm -hmm. that was my my first career. And as a violin teacher, there's a few things you really don't care about. Number one, you don't care when a child starts playing, right? 
I mean, a person can begin to be a violin student when they're four or 11 or 14 or 44. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter, right? You don't compare. You don't say, oh, if you don't start the violin at six, like you must be in first grade or else uh, you're somehow going to fail. Mm -hmm. It's not an idea. Right. Second thing is, you know, we don't compare students to other students, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have a system that says, well, because, you know, Billy's going faster or plays better than Sally, we somehow acknowledge that. No, Billy plays the way he plays, Sally plays the way she plays. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no need to compare. Now, maybe when they go audition for an orchestra, then there's a comparison for, you know, what seat and all mm -hmm. that. But in the in the teaching area, there's no benefit to that. Right. The third thing is, is we don't look at, you know, a schedule. Okay, everyone must finish book one in nine months or else you're behind. No, you can take six months, you can take two years. It doesn't matter how long it takes to finish book one. What matters is that you make progress. And I think if we could get this whole idea back into our thinking about education, that we don't need to compare children, especially not based on age. When we do so, it just it generally produces pride or bitterness, both of which are not productive. We also would then look at adjusting curriculum. Yes, if we're teaching groups of students, we have to do things together. But certain things really should be on a kind of independent pathway. Cumulative subjects like math, for example. And even in our writing program, you know, we stress the importance of customizing the assignment for the reading level of the student, for the experience of the student. The speed of the checklist can be developed at different speeds for different students, even in one classroom. And so this was clearly Mrs. Ingham's understanding. All children are the same in that they are all children, but each one of them is different from each other of them. And that if you create a pathway where each can be successful, appropriately challenged, and see the progress, then everything is so much better. So ever since I've been working for IEW, and actually before that, we just have levels A, B, and C. We yeah. don't have grade just levels on our materials. Approximate reading level, right. and then a parent or teacher can mm -hmm. choose from our materials that which meets, hopefully, the the content interests or content applicability combined with the approximate reading level erring on the side of being you know at or below and then a speed of checklist which can can always be adjusted by the teacher so even though we have you know theme based writing books or student intensive materials that have printed out checklists the teacher is always encouraged to cross something off add something on customize that so even within a group of you know, a dozen, 20 kids, you could have three, four different speeds, different levels going all at the same time. And so I think that's part of the brilliance. Yep. When I saw Webster's writing program in 1990, and I saw Mrs. Ingham's philosophy that was at the foundation of it, I said, well, that is a Suzuki method for teaching writing. So while we understand that all children need to learn similar things to be competent, reading, writing, calculation. The way in which they learn, the speed in which they learn, and the dynamic, that may differ greatly right? because we're all different. So that's the third thing I've come to think. Very important lesson from three decades. So that segues into point four. 
which is? Well, and this one, you know, is kind of a soapbox, so <laughs> you'll have to, you know, give me the time signal lest I go <laughs> off on a, a very wide digression. And maybe just a little bit controversial? Maybe a little bit. Although less and less, because more and more people are really starting to see this in all different areas. Okay. But that is that progressive education does not necessarily mean progress. They use that term. This is progressive education. This is modern. This is new. Therefore, it must be better. Hmm. But there's a fallacy there. Not all change is good. Not every new thing is better than an old thing. And so you know, what we see is this progressive ideals that have been developed and pushed and the newest iteration and the newest standards and the newest curriculum and and textbooks and all this hasn't actually worked to improve basic skills. All we have to do is look at the Carnegie reports and we see that reading ability, writing ability, and arithmetic, calculation, math skills are all in a decline Mm. for decades. Mm -hmm. So if the progressive direction hasn't been working, then wouldn't it make sense to go back and say, ah, what did people do before things started getting worse faster? Or maybe what did people do when basic skills were at a very high level? I mean, that would make sense. But uh, I don't know, maybe it's the commercial aspect. There's not as much money in looking back and saying, what did we used to do? There's more, I suppose, in coming up with some new approach, a new idea. Myra Linden wrote, she co-authored a book in 1990 called Why Johnny Can't Write. Okay. This was part of the Why Johnny Can't Do Anything series, <laughs> okay. you know. But in that book, she documented with very good primary source citations that there had been a steady decline in the writing skills of high school and college graduates for 20 years. Wow. Okay, that was in 1990. Okay. So now we're in 2017. So that would be 27 more years plus 20. So we're talking almost 50 years Mm -hmm. of decline in the writing skills of high school graduates Mm. and college students. Wake up and smell the roses, I suppose, or wake up and smell the... <laughs> Bad test scores? I don't know what they smell like. <laughs> I was going to make a metaphor, but okay. best to leave it off. And I don't, I don't know that anyone is going to argue that it's gotten better in the last 10 years. In fact, you know, we see every day coming across our screen, New York Times, why kids can't write. That was yeah, just... Just yesterday I yeah, shared that with you. You meet people, you know, at conferences, in airplanes, just mm-hmm. random people. They complain about the lack of ability. And in that book, she isolates the two worst and the two best ways mm-hmm. to teach writing, according okay. to her research and her experience. And so this is a very well-researched little book, Why... Johnny can't write. Anyway, the two worst ways, number one is free writing, Hmm. right? This has kind of been the dominant idea for, what, I don't know, the last 40 years. The idea that if kids just write and get inspired and express themselves, they'll get better at that. Mm -hmm. So it's all about kind of cheerleading and coaching and and reading provocative things that helps you find your voice. And, mm-hmm. and they bring this all the way down into the elementary grades. Right. And they're spending so much time on this 
they don't develop the basic skills to actually express their ideas later on. And then they're frustrated. And then their high school teachers are frustrated. And mm-hmm. the employers are frustrated. Yes. And the college teachers are frustrated. Yes. That's actually not what most people do with writing. <laughs> most people have to communicate ideas in an organized and effective way. We've actually started asking anybody who wants to come work for us to submit a writing sample so we can evaluate whether or not they can work for the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Well, we should probably put those in a file and then five years later and give (laughs) them another writing sample, (laughs) see if they improve by working there. Yeah, great idea. So free writing is probably the least effective form Mm. And that seems to be the most popular, the most dominant. You see that in the writing workshop. And I won't name names, but there's mm-hmm. all sorts of people with big names doing teacher right. training, and that's right. their primary mode. So we have something akin to a free writing assignment, perhaps, the blank page assignment. But we don't get to that in the Institute for Excellence in Writing in our method until Unit 7. Well, and not it's you wouldn't really even compare the two mm. because, yes, it's write whatever you want to, but... That's content. We're still teaching structure and style. Right. We're not eliminating the framework right. for learning the tools. Right. Even though at Unit 7, the kids are free to invent what they want to. And and in my experience, both personally as a homeschooling mom teaching my boys and now reading the hundreds and thousands of testimonies we get, students really crave that type of structure because there's freedom within that structure. Sure. Mm-hmm. They they know if they're learning something. Right. Number two, least effective, an over-reliance on grammar. Mm. And that, of course, would be generally that teaching of grammar out of context. Mm. And that doesn't seem to carry over and improve student writing. Thus, because the research shows that, it's even more reason for English teachers to avoid or eliminate the teaching of grammar Mm -hmm. in schools. What we have found, of course, is that with our stylistic techniques, just teaching those simple six Mm dress-ups over a period of weeks or months, you you learn more grammar in -hmm. doing that Mm -hmm. than the average college graduate knows. And it's easy, and it makes sense because you're not you know, underlying or diagramming or identifying. You're using as you write. Right. Interestingly, Myra Linden's two best methods of teaching writing parallel exactly what we've been doing since the beginning, Mm -hmm. and that is, number one, sentence combining, where you take two ideas and put it together. Okay. Well, ha-ha, who, which clause, when, Mm -hmm. while, since, although clause, because clause, Mm -hmm. prepositional phrase, right? All of our tools facilitate taking of two ideas and putting them together and practicing doing that. And then her number one thing she pushes is called text reconstruction. Okay. <laughs> which, of course, she cites that excerpt from the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. You mean the one in our seminar The workbook? one that we, yeah. <laughs> that, and says, you know, this has been used from the ancient times. Right. Franklin and other authors, Somerset Maugham, Malcolm X even, mm. uh, all did this idea where you kind of take notes from something mm-hmm. and then you reconstruct that original text. And so it's modeling. It's imitation. Right. It's one of the core principles of learning, and yet it's kind of been thrown out, baby with the bathwater, with the progressive idea. You know, what are the fundamentals of learning? We could do a, a podcast on this one too, but there's attentiveness, right? mm-hmm. attention. Okay. If you can't attend, how do you learn anything? 
and then there's memory, and then there's imitation. Mm. And so these three things are what has always worked from time immemorial, and yet we see them degraded today. Imitation, memory are not valued in progressive education. No, can't copy anybody else's ideas. And this kind of brings us to the next point in the progressive movement, which is technology. So let's push more and more technology into the classroom. Let's, you know, be sure we've got, you know, all the middle schoolers with tablets. Let's be sure we move those tablets into, you know, grade two, because Mm -hmm. if they don't start using a tablet in grade two, Mm -hmm. well, they'll be behind the technology curve. And, of course, not only does the technology tend to fragment attentiveness, it tends to eclipse or, or even prevent basic skills book I read years ago, it's probably 15 years old, but it's every bit as relevant now as it was then, is called The Flickering Mind, Mm. The False Promise of Technology in Education. And he finds his research, as a Wall Street Journal reporter, spent a year researching and writing this book, an exact and consistent inverse correlation. The more computers in a school classroom, the lower the basic skills of reading, writing, and computation. Interesting. The highest level of basic skills he found in the zero technology classrooms. The differential was greater the earlier grades you went to. Well, that kind of makes sense. When I think about driving and using a GPS, I don't necessarily <laughs> remember how to get there without the GPS. Yes, yes. And, and if now if we had a, a regular map, you know, we'd be <laughs> turning it around and trying to make it function like our phone. But in general, technology will atrophy Mm. the skill which it replaces. Yes. And so I think we want to be very careful before we rush headlong into using a lot of technology with the teaching of writing. Right. There's something very important about writing on paper and being able to cross out and put something in. There's a a whole... Well, we did a talk on that, I think, pen and paper, yes, what the research says. So, you know, people can go there. The last point, and I know we're kind of running out of time here. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we see that technology will atrophy the skill which it replaces. You even show children that calculators exist. You can't convince them that it's worth learning to do mental math. You show them spell checkers and they'll say, well, why should I bother learning to spell? They can ask their phone, you know, what are the dates of the Civil War? So why should they bother to memorize the dates of the Civil War? And so this push of technology into schools, I feel is very dangerous Mm -hmm. because the effects of it may not be known until it's too late to reverse them. So we here at IEW, are continuing to push for teach students to write on paper. Mm-hmm. Keep them writing on paper, you know, well into their, you know, preteen or early teen years so that they go into adulthood with that distinctly human ability and then as they master basic skills, then technology may enhance their productivity down line. But we don't want to eliminate the skill or eclipse the development of the skill by introducing the technology prematurely. Right, and we mentioned the talk, pen and paper, what the research says. I also want to just share with our listeners that Andrew wrote an article, Low Tech, 
teaching with high results. So I think that would be something that you'll be interested in reading as well. Okay, so I think we're out of time. You're going to have to pick up next week. That's what happens with podcasts. (laughs) Yes. And so next week, college and career readiness. Yes. And what it isn't. And one more, one or two more after that. You have to tune in to find out. Sounds great. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.